Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Sam Tatum. I'm very excited to have Sam on. He's the head of behavioral sciences at Ogilvy's. What's really interesting is he's just developed or written a new book called Evolutionary Ideas. And it couldn't have come at a better time in my life because I've been looking at applying evolutionary ideas that put humanity to the top of the food chain. So this book really captured my attention. So we're going to explore what inspired the book, the really interesting tension between creationism and evolutionary systems, the balance between creating complexity and simplicity, and how do we get people to think in a way that enables them to access new ideas and to move forward, but also to take from nature. It's a genuinely fascinating hypothesis or position that you've taken. And I think one of the most interesting things is around blind spots in innovation. Do we really need to bring revolutionary ideas? Do we need to have big answers to big problems? Do we, do we have to be look for novel solutions to novel problems? Or um, can we maybe look back in history and ask, has someone else done this before? Sam, welcome. Marcus, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Okay. So, Sam, would you mind telling us maybe 60 seconds about your background and how you got to where you are? Of course. Um, so my, my background is as a, as a psychologist. So I'm an organizational psychologist uh, in, my, in my training. As you go through the sort of the, the psychology route through studies, there's sort of a bit of a fork in the road, um, whether you explore sort of a more clinical approach, looking at more sort of abnormal behaviors versus more normative behavior. And I've always been more interested in sort of normative human behavior and organizational psychology was the path before actually sort of behavioral economics and the broader behavioral sciences were, were, were as accessible. I went from organizational development roles in, in, in large organizations into, into advertising at, at Ogilvy. So I worked as, a, as a, an advertising strategist for several years and then moved more sort of into a, a focused role um, within our behavioral science practice within Ogilvy. And now I, I, I lead our global uh, practice um, within Ogilvy that um, spans several countries with a big footprint in the, in the UK that lives to bring the growing and eclectic and ever-exciting world of behavioral science and creativity together uh, to help us to solve some of the world's most interesting and, and stickiest challenges. Uh, so that's a, sort of a little bit as to, to how I got where I am. Excellent. Okay, well, let's uh, get stuck into the book first off. So tell me, what inspired you to write Evolutionary Ideas? Great question. And, and there was really a, a penny drop moment, probably five, six years ago, and I was sent a video. I was sent a video about um, the, the innovation of the Shinkansen 500, the Japanese bullet train. The Shinkansen 500 had sort of stretches the, the rail between Tokyo and Osaka. And they were faced with the challenge of, of not only did they need to sort of increase the, the, the speed and reduce the time, but the biggest challenge they faced was, a, was actually with the noise that was created on the, on the, by, the, by, by the train. Uh, the faster it went, the louder it became. And, and a specific challenge they had was actually with tunnels along the Shinkansen. And every time the speed train sort of sped through the tunnel, it was a bit like firing a bullet. But the sort of the built-up air pressure created a, a, a tunnel boom. And what I was fascinated to, to see is that rather than look at advanced physics and, and look at sort of the textbooks and engineering, purest engineering solutions for an answer. What they did was actually look to biology. They were inspired by the, the, the shape and diameter of the, of the kingfisher's bill 
Uh, and they essentially sort of modeled the nose of the Shinkansen 500 based on, on the kingfisher. So a, a creature that's perfectly evolved to dive from the air into water, a substance that's 800 times denser to skewer its prey. And they were able to adapt this and, and remove the, the, the tunnel boom. And I was just sort of blown away by this, by this story. It's a, it's a fascinating example of a, of, a, of a category called biomimicry, and we can explore that if, if we like a little bit later. But when I saw this film looking at biological solutions inspiring engineering innovation, it struck me that this is essentially what um, we had been doing for, for many years in, in psychology. Um, but rather than borrowing from sort of evolved biology, we'll, we're sort of better understanding and identifying sort of adapted psychological solutions and reapplying them to solve distinctively human problems. Um, so there was a real parallel that the story of the Shinkansen um, gave me that helped me tell a, a slightly more complex story. I think there's a really interesting underlying theme to extrapolate from this as well, which is the intersectional moments of having biologists and engineers, psychologists and advertisers. And it's that friction. That for, for me, that's been the, the best thing about lockdown, bar none, because for between 12 and 16 hours a day, I've been engaging with other people in and around my field in different disciplines, um, dozens and dozens of different markets. And the net result of that is all of that has created this fabulous synthesis where we've been feeding off one another's uh, ideas and experience. And because we're looking at it through very different perspectives, the same problem, you come at it with a much richer outcome. And when you do that many, many, many times, you develop really well-rounded, sustainable solutions. Yeah. Yeah, someone else might have solved it just in a slightly different category or from a slightly different perspective. Often yeah. say if everyone sort of sitting in the room is thinking the same thing, then everyone else is pointless. <laughs> so it's wonderful yeah. to be able to bring such eclectic thinkers together. It gets even more fun, though, when you start to fit like uh, two tectonic plates, you know, when there's that friction and mm. you disagree and then you yep. work out how you can agree to solve yeah. the same problem. That really enriches it. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about the book, because it did seem that it was about building on what's gone before and taking the best. I was listening to David McWilliams' podcast over the weekend, and a theme that kept coming through was after um, the uh, dot-com crash, Web 2.0 was actually christened because it's the stuff that survived the dot-com crash. It's not just another iteration of the web. And what I noticed in your book is a very similar theme, that the stuff that survives the failure that you then take out and you build on that, that's what makes it richer. And I think this is a really interesting piece around risk. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, but I mean, you've, you've articulated it wonderfully. And the, and the sort of the, the perspective from the Biomimicry Institute, I think, is that Anything that's around today has survived sort of 3.8 billion years of research and development. You're in the the failures, biological failures are now fossils and everything around us, we have something to learn from. And it becomes a real liberating force then for us to to appreciate what has survived and understand what what has led to its survival and then extrapolate that success. There's that wonderful Russian process, TRIZ, that uh, you talk about in the book where they've identified that the problem's been solved before, there are consistent patterns within the solutions, and they solve contradictions, and that creates breakthroughs in innovation. 
So can you talk to us about TRIZ? Because I find this whole process fascinating and remarkably efficient. Yeah, I, I agree. No, TRIZ is a, a, a fantastic engineering framework, as you, as you mentioned. So it was, it was developed by a, a Russian engineer who found himself in a role in the, the Naval Patent Office. So he was sort of brought through the, the, the army and accelerated, and he found himself sort of as an inventor looking at patents every day and sort of fundamentally realised that most of these patents um, were actually not novel innovations. They were just simply looking to solve the same problems in, in similar ways. So what they did is, is look at over 200,000 patents and map the level of, invented, of inventiveness to identify actually what is what is pure sort of moonshot innovation. It's really about 1% that we can sort of dictate as, as, as category-breaking sort of moonshot innovation, like the laser beam has changed sort of surveillance for, 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 for forever. What the TRIZ framework does is start to articulate, sort of put a label on these patterns of solutions. So there's 40 different inventive principles is what they're called. So one example is the concept of nested doll. So if you imagine the Russian doll, that's a nested doll. Um, So if you look at innovation within that category, you've got like the telescopic lens on a camera, that's sort of a nested doll. Um, the retracted yeah. sort of mechanism of a tape measure, that's a, a nested doll solution. A kinder surprise is a good example of a, of a nested doll, right? So, so that's sort of, I think, inventive principle number seven. But there are many, if you think of segmentation, like breaking up sort of a, a curtain into Venetian blinds, that's using the principle of segmentation, or a, or a sofa into a modular lounge, that's using segmentation. A lovely one called beforehand cushioning. I think, I think you're in the UK at the moment, Marcus, the, the yeah. British F1 over the week. I mean, thankfully, there was some tyres around the edges predicting that something might go wrong. That's an example of beforehand cushioning, having a life jacket under the seat beforehand cushioning. So what we can start to do is see these categories of inventive solutions and, and label them a little bit like we identify species based on the presence of a spinal cord or gills. We can start to look at species or patterns of inventive solutions in the technical realm. And that's what TRIZ does. So there's, I think, 40 different uh, inventive principles. But you mentioned, and where this gets particularly exciting, is how they can be applied systematically to innovate. Um, so what the TRIZ process does is it maps a series of parameters. If you think of a parameter like length, speed, weight, so several parameters on a, on a matrix. So you might be faced with a challenge of, increasing the length of something without increasing its volume. So how can I make an umbrella big enough to cover the human body, but small enough to fit in a handbag? So that's sort of a challenge that we might face in innovation. And what the TRIZ matrix does is then tell you, well, here are several inventive principles that you should look to. So maybe you should look to nested doll as a good place to start. So rather than starting from scratch, every time you're faced with solving a problem, you can see, okay, what is the, what is the technical contradiction that I need to solve? And therefore, what's the short list of inventive principles that I should explore? And that then opens up the world of, of inspiration for us. We can be inspired by a, a retractable tape measure or a kinder surprise or a sort of a, a telescopic lens on a camera when we're building an umbrella. And I just think that's wonderful. It's really interesting that the number of ideas that do come from seemingly completely unrelated areas. So, for example, Uber would be a classic example. No one would necessarily have thought timetabling software and taxis would have necessarily gone together. 
but they did. And you're seeing so much disruption happening, but we've got to be really careful that we're not creating derivative innovation because I think that tends to be, it, it has its place, but PlayStation, PlayStation 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 doesn't really feel like innovation. That's more like iteration. But as we go into what looks like it's going to be a really tough few years, many of the economic indicators are coinciding to give us this. Uh, I believe that we need to innovate and we also need to cooperate uh, to make it through these very difficult times that are ahead. We need to be efficient with where we look for the solution as well. When time is tight and, 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 and we, we don't have time to spare, we need to, we need to cut to the chase pretty quick. And as you say, it's, it's not sort of PlayStation, PlayStation 2 derivative innovation. It's totally helping us to change the frame of reference that we're looking to for inspiration. That's, what I, that's where we go back to the, the, the Shinkansen and thinking, well, actually, who, who would have thought to, to look at, a, look at a, a, a kingfisher? Who would think... Well, let alone penguins. Let alone penguins. And let owls. alone penguins. Let alone owls. Just the same, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful business in the US called Whale Power. Making energy efficient wind turbines by borrowing from the humpback whale. They found that the tubercles of the humpback whale fin enable it to sort of increase the, the, the lift and reduce the drag. And again, it's just looking at spaces that, that help us to unlock fresh creative juices to change the frame of reference that we otherwise would. And, and, and that's a challenge that I've seen over several years working in, in advertising that we're often blinded by the category that we're in. I used to work. We did a lot of work for a client, Castrol. We did a lot of work, and every this several years ago, and every year we would do a, a creative review of the lubricant industry. So we'd see how Valvoline communicating, what's Shell Helix doing. Um, so we'd, we'd we'd look at our category, but we'd never think to explore what Powerade and Gatorade are doing. Well, and why would you? <laughs> but if you understand that they're both sort of fundamentally, sort of psychologically the same proposition, that you're looking to help someone to trust that there's an efficient sort of an efficient, an effective liquid um, that's working behind closed doors that you need to charge a premium for. If we can help people believe in the power of electrolytes for Powerade, then maybe we can help people believe in the power of, of Magnatech. And by thinking this way, we can sort of escape the, 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 the traps, I think, of the category that we might be in. So how do you prevent yourself from sending out the message that's expensive? Or do you want to? Sometimes it, that's expensive is a, is a good message to say. I mean, if we think of Stella Artois refreshingly expensive, sometimes yeah. the expense is part of the product, right? If, it, if, it's, if it's cheap, it's, it's not really that, that good for my car. But it's helping us to justify the expense or reinforce trust in the power of the solution. One of the, the strategies I think that are effective is, is really being transparent with the, with the process, being concrete with, um, with the technology. So rather than sort of talking about invisible irons, you know, make them characters, make them sort of physical, tangible things that I can see working hard for me. And again, we see that in, in both very different categories, one working on muscles, the other working on pistons. So it's, it's not necessarily the expense that the pro is, the, is the problem. Sometimes that can be sort of one of the most invaluable elements of the product mix, but helping people to, to trust in its sort of effectiveness to, for that price is that is the challenge that we're faced with and that's what we're, we're not faced with that just alone in that category sorry marcus well we're, we're, no, no 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 policy needed we're going into a period where a lot of managers will never have had to make a profit before because their business model was one that they had to grow revenue at any cost 
And it was all about market share acquisition, new logos, new revenues, and pipeline. Now, the emphasis has shifted, and they have to make a profit. Everything that made them a hero in the old world is now going to damage their capability of meeting their new requirements. So what (laughs) advice would you give to somebody who's facing a literally 180-degree flip to do stuff that feels so alien? How do they manage to break through their their natural uh, fear, resistance, um, the stuff, the baggage they hang on to? How do people get through that? I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough thing. We're all comfortable doing what we're used to. There is a degree of, of risk and, and, and self-belief that's required to, to, to do something different. But as we look at the shifting nature of our, of our roles, I think it could be as simple as distilling down. Like, what are we asking people to, to do? Are we asking people to trust in us? Are we helping people to make a different decision? Are we looking to sort of close that last mile in, in action? Might we be looking at enhancing loyalty or, or, or improving our experience? So if we can, if we can sort of distill it down to we, we were about acquisition, now we're about retention, or we were about retention, now we need to be about acquisition, as simple as, as, as that sort of frame, then we can start to say, well, what, again, I've obviously got a a lens by which I'm, I'm seeing this through at the moment, but we can start to see what are some other ways in which this has been achieved and it isn't necessarily always in the category that you're in that the solution lies. But by changing the changing the frame to say it's about aiding decision-making, then we can borrow from sort of a chocolate store if we're in, in, a, in, a, in a bank because the choice architecture there is just as relevant as it, as it is over here if we know what we're looking for. How interesting. Okay, I'm glad I asked that question. That's useful to know. So I I wanted to pick up on something that you talked about in the book, which was uh, signaling. Talk to me about what you mean by that. Signaling is a term that's often used in in biology. And and I I speak about it in the book with respect to trust and trustworthiness. If we look in, in, in nature, there's a lot of fascinating literature around costly signaling. So if we think the peacock is 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 often cited example of this that the the train the the, the tail of the peacock of the male peacock it's so ex- extravagant it's such a hindrance to its survival that if it wasn't fit enough to carry such a large tail and um, then it would be sort of pecked off by predators so it becomes a sort of the, the the hindrance the cost of the large tail becomes a signal of the fitness of the of the animal the bright coloration of the poison dart frog again it's a costly signal it's is in blazing disregard of its camouflage, but it helps to tell everyone that I'm so poisonous you can't afford to eat me. It's a cost to its camouflage, therefore reinforces trust in the fact that you must be you must be poisonous. So there's a, a, a lot of fascinating literature around costly signaling, and um, that expense shows that you've got skin in the game, that you've got uh, reputation at stake, that you've got sort of a quality quality to share. Um, so when we think about it in in in, in marketing or in advertising, oftentimes we, we, we talk about the, the, the costly signal of a Super Bowl ad. I mean, to be able to spend $2 million on a 30-second ad shows that you've got, you've got something, you, you've got fitness, right? You can spend $2 million for 30 seconds. Therefore, you've got enough people buying your product to help to fund what might be an extravagant waste. If we think of the, the, the tin foil on top of a San Pellegrino, a lovely little piece of, of signaling, it's just a, a, bit of, a little bit of waste that helps to reinforce trust in the, in the, in the, in the quality of a product. So in the book, I explore it through sort of the, 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 the cost, 
So what might be sort of in, whether that's a, a, a sort of a cost to, to utility or profits, looking at sort of a cost to reputation. So oftentimes if, if something's a very public message that there's a higher reputational cost, there's a higher probability that if you're lying to people, that you'll be found out. Oftentimes we look at a lot of the, the communications of people like Facebook or, or Google or Uber, who are big digital behemoths. But when they talk about safety and privacy, they tend to use traditional channels. They don't sort of use oh, the same sort of one-to-one -one channel. They often go big bus sides or big TV or out of home because it's just as important that someone else can see you seeing it that it was just sent to you alone. Because if it, was, if it wasn't true, then we'd be more likely or able to call bullshit uh, and inform each other. Um, so signaling is a really fascinating space. Very interesting. Okay. One of the things that I really liked um, in the book was sometimes you have to take stuff out. Unexpected absences can help build trust. Can we build on that theme for a moment? I think what you're referring to is, is it's sort of exploring social, social proof. Yeah. So social proof is a, a wonderful area of, of psychology that we, we're more comfortable if we see other people doing something. Again, if, if, we, if, we, if we see a um, large number of testimonials or, or, or reviews on a product on Amazon, we're more comfortable um, to, to do the same. And the same can be true as if something is actually removed from, a, from a, an expected um, context. So, for example, if we go to a jar of cookies and realise that it's empty, we sort of go, well, they must have been good cookies. Um, the examples that I use in the book, I remember I was in the Cotswolds, went to a cafe, um, and it was sort of getting towards the end of the day, and I remember looking at the food that was remaining and all of the sausage rolls and the pasties had been taken away, and there was just sort of a, the, the vegetarian section that was untouched. And I sort of thought, no, I, I don't need to go there, You I mean, because evidently all the good stuff has already been taken. So what's important for me on, on, on that is that we can use social proof in a couple of different ways. And to take sort of to take our readers back, our listeners back a step, we spoke before about tris and contradictions and how um, we can be sort of more systematic in engineering by thinking about increasing the volume of something without increasing its length. And therefore, we can explore those inventive principles. What I explore and what the book covers is, is psychological contradictions. Um, so rather than speed or weight or length and volume, we look at trust or decisions or triggering action without forcing a response or in enhancing loyalty and without increasing incentives. And social proof is really sort of our inventive principle. That's something that we can use. And just as we can see the concept of nested doll and triz in a retractable tape measure and a kinder surprise in a telescopic lens, when we look in the world of social proof, there are many different manifestations of this. Sometimes it can be adding something to a context, like a review on a website. Sometimes it can be taking something away, um, like the best sausage rolls in the cafe um, that says, well, they must have been, they must have been the, the quality. It's just a, a, another way of, of thinking about um, exhausting the creative potential of, of a concept like social proof. Interesting. So it, I think an evolutionary step in the book there is how that then drives default decisions when in the decision architecture is that right um yes yeah, so where you're talking about disney changing the menu that's right so so defaults many of us will be familiar with most often sort of seen in in opt-in or opt-out choices some of the, the the terrible sludges that we might get in subscription letters that says 
click this button to opt out of our further communications, what we find is that thinking is really expensive for us. It costs a lot of calories for us to engage in micro decisions like this. So we tend to sort of just go with the flow of preset options. And, and those, are, those are defaults. So we explore the concept of defaults in the part of the book that's about decision-making. And as you say, it can be as simple as changing the defaulted side of a Walt Disney meal from fries to sliced up apples, all the way through to changing the default in organ donation uh, that many of our listeners might've heard of sort of wonderful sort of literature around differences in organ donation between Austria and Germany, two neighboring countries with vastly different donation rates, simply because of the process by which people were, were, were asked to, 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 to donate. So it's a lovely space. And, and again, in what I hope to do with the book Evolutionary Ideas is to take it beyond the existing literature. So many of us will be familiar with the concept of defaults and, and how this is um, presented in, in literature. But what was really important for me in evolutionary ideas is to see how how much further this uh, concept can be um, can be applied. How we can see examples of of defaults around us, um, and 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 that can be as as simple as a an innovation in hospitals to put hand sanitizer in the handles of doors. So that you open the handle of the door and you automatically sort of a, a, a nudge to clean your hand, that becomes sort of a default. You almost need to sort of opt out of that process rather than opt in um, all the way through to sort of helping to, to, to bundle behaviors like a, a wonderful campaign in Brazil that was looking to save water by encouraging people to pee in the shower. Don't ask people to do anything new. <laughs> Don't ask people to, to, to conserve water. Just ask them to pee in the shower. And we can find that we can save thousands of liters of water. So I think it's just important for us to see that, that what behavioral science has given us is this language, like defaults, like social proof, like commitment devices or goal gradients. So it's this language that behavioral science gives us. Just like in TRIZ, we have beforehand cushioning, nested doll segmentation, these inventive principles. Now we have these psychological inventive principles that can help us to, to innovate in the cognitive realm, not just the uh, in, in sort of technical or engineering physical space. One part of the book that really just captured my attention because I thought was so brilliant in its simplicity and elegance is in helping make decisions. How, how can we embed our desired outcome into an existing decision. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. I, I'm trying to work with uh, a number of partners in an ecosystem and make it as close to business as usual as possible. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like any uh, additional effort. What frequent choice could we bundle our decide, desired decision with? Well, again, if you can piggyback on something that's already happening, for example, their procurement process, and yeah, if there's yeah, a way yeah. that you can tap into that, then there's no resistance. You're just finding stuff in common. And then how uh, might we bake in a desired outcome into existing behavior? Well, uh, again, you've just talked about it, peeing in the shower. Exactly. So, so we can learn from peeing in the shower for a procurement process. If we better understand what already might happen and encourage that, rather than looking to, to, to deviate to something completely novel. <laughs> but, 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 you're, but you're right. But I mean, we can speak. Taking the piss. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you mentioned uh, sort of embedding embedding an outcome in 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 a in a, in a choice, and, and there's a lovely frame called choice architecture, developed by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, um, where we can start to think about how a, an op option is framed or how a default might be created to sort of embed a desired outcome 
from from the start. And it can be as simple as looking at a remote control that has a Netflix button just under the channel, the, ch- the channel change, right? So it's sort of defaulting to Netflix as being sort of the, the, the preferred pay-per-view. All the way mm-hmm. through to I saw in uh, uh, just an example of a of a of a water faucet in a in a shower, and that's one of the amazing things I find about the UK is that every shower you get it, it's different. <laughs> it's, like, it's got a different mechanism, but this one was a, a, a single a single dial, but it just had one number. It just had thirty eight degrees and then up or down, and it was really interesting to s- sort of assume that well, that's just acknowledging that 38 degrees is how you should have your shower. Like if you have it any other way, you're some sort of psychopath. So it can be really simple design cues that help to acknowledge how someone should behave in a context. And once we, once we know what's occurring, either by design or, or through evolved processes, right, it's just this works, so let's continue to do it we can start to, again, extrapolate that into foreign contexts. We can, we can learn from a remote control when we're looking at a, at a credit card payment system. We can think about the shower faucet when we're trying to encourage people to, to, to drive a particular speed down a, down a, a narrow highway. Once we understand the, 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 the concepts behind these evolved solutions, we can apply them more readily in foreign contexts. Okay. So another really important theme that I'd like to, uh, you to talk about uh, now is chunking. Would you mind going to some detail there? Because it seems to build on trays and uh, other aspects of the book. So chunking is another, another concept in the, in the book in the realm of decision-making. How do we help people to make decisions? We chunk them. So we, again, we have sort of finite cognitive processes. So to help make things easier for us, we chunk decisions down to, to make more sense. When we get I, sort of an IKEA flat pack, it doesn't just say like one step make the shelving unit. It breaks it down into 15 palatable sort of steps that help us to follow. Just like we look at a, at a menu, it might chunk it down based on entrees or mains, or it might chunk it based on the protein. So chunking helps us to sort of navigate, navigate complexity. So chunking can be used to make things sort of easier, just like that. What I've sort of found particularly fascinating is looking at how chunking can be used to slow decision-making. So when something might seem like an easy binary decision, we can chunk it down to help people acknowledge that there's many shades of gray in between there. So an example I I share in the book is around uh, sort of the presumption of innocence, and if someone sort of joins a jury, it might yeah. look like a binary choice between sort of innocent and guilty. <laughs> but actually, there are many different shades of innocence. You know, we've got to have the burden of proof is about nine different chunks of 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 sort of. Uh, I, I can't recall. If you give me two seconds, I can probably flip to it. The the actual articulations of it in the burden of proof, but it helps to it helps to make two seconds. Because it's it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating example. So proven not guilty, highly unlikely, less than likely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Not unlikely, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Guilt likely and guilt highly likely, all before reaching the stage of guilt beyond reasonable doubt. And so we can wow. we can learn from that. And, and, and so, so it's a lovely example. So instead of just thinking that this is a simple binary choice, actually you can create you can chunk that down so people really live by the presumption of innocence. We see the same on a on a London tube station where we chunk up the platform in areas of designated safety and, and danger. So the mind the gap signal is a chunk. 
right? It's still the same physical platform, but that's gone from what is perceptually safe to what is what is what is dangerous. And if we had, I wonder if we had a, added a, another chunk, um, sort of from mind the gap to life at risk, <laughs> we might find that that actually people stood even further back because we can just manufacture this this chunk that helps people to to, to navigate a complex environment. So chunking is is a really fascinating, again, it can help us to make decisions easier, like a menu, like Ikea, or it can help us to make sort of what might be seen as a deceptively simple task or something we want people to actually really consider a little bit harder. We can create perceptual sort of friction with these chunks, just like the presumption of innocence. Okay. Because I'm going to deviate from the theme for a moment because one of the challenges that most salespeople face is the ability to help the customer make the intellectual leap and the shortcut from the magnetic pull of the status quo, which wins 60% of typical buying cycles, to the better future. And you've got to turn up with table stakes that make you significantly more attractive than doing nothing. And the challenge here is that I think most marketing and most selling is trying to rush the customer to meet them at a place they want them at rather than where the buyer actually is Mm, in mm. their buying cycle. So again, what advice would you give to people to use chunking to help them create a, a staged journey for the customer so that they can make that leap, but in a way that doesn't fire off their amygdala and send them running to the hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I mean ch- chunking is maybe how we how we would view it, but it might not be the solution for the client. So, so maybe if we start to think of the sales cycle, and again, it makes sense. We we naturally chunk this down. I mean, if you think of a, a classic ADA sort of attention, interest, desire, action, that's a natural chunked process just to make life easy for us. But what we what we could explore are other tactics that aren't necessarily about the hard sell, but they help us to 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 encourage a sale in the future. So. Now we might be moving from triggering action to thinking about sort of commitment or loyalty. And it's not just sort of a loyalty program. There are different ways in which we can think about securing a sale in the future, even if someone might not be ready to part money just now. Um, So an example uh, that I explore in the book is actually around vaccination rates in India. And what they found is for children, there's still, uh, this is several years ago, um, but still a sort of a, a, a horrifying am- amount of, of infant mortality for, for otherwise preventable diseases. And one of the, the, the significant challenges was parents bringing their children back for a complete course of vaccination. We're all too familiar now through COVID that we, we need several rounds, oftentimes need several rounds of a dose before we're actually immune. And what parents were doing is either not bringing their children at all or, or bringing them just for one. So what they did was give give children uh, half half toys. So they gave they gave, handed kids half a half a, a piece of an elephant, and they received <laughs> the, the second half. So it's a lovely and again it wasn't it wasn't sort of the the, the hard sell, but it was giving something that had value once it was completed. So that's an interesting way of thinking. Well, if it's not about buying something now, what can I what can I give to my customer? What can I give to my partner now that starts them sort of committed to a, a future transaction or or, or or conversion? The example sort of maybe closer to me was when I used to get my coffee uh, in Sydney. I remember in the in the morning when the line was very long, the staff 
would start to go along the line and and because they were worried about people leaving the line, people in a rush leaving the line, going to another cafe, maybe the same sort of challenge that that we might be facing through the sales cycle, be it a longer time horizon. But what they did was they went up the line and they asked people for their order and they gave them a coffee cup lid. So I'd say a latte and they'd give me a they'd give me a, a, a lid. Once they'd given me the coffee cup lid, I was sort of committed to the transaction. Now I had to wait the 10 minutes because I had I had I already had the lid. So it's really sort of genius commitment device, even though every time I went to the counter, I still needed to reorder my coffee. Um, so it was it actually did nothing for the process, but they committed me to the transaction. And there are really subtle ways in which this occurs. It can be how you proposition your client. I don't write about this in the book, but I, I remember several years ago, I received a, uh, an email from a Russian bride. And it, it framed me as, hi there, Mr. Dependable. Are you my Mr. Dependable? So you're sort of propositioning someone in a way that you hope that they will behave. You're telling me I'm, I'm dependable. Um, so I should probably follow up and email you back. Just like when you see, hello, dear loyal customer, when you go into a store, it sort of encourages you, well, I am, I suppose I should be loyal. I am loyal. So there are some really subtle things that we can do in advance of a transaction that can help us downstream. Uh, and again, I mean, in, in, in that, we've explored everything from vaccinations through to coffee cups through to the, the proposition of a Russian bride. But we can, again, extrapolate this and reapply it if we know the problem that we're looking to solve. Very, very interesting. So, Sam, how do we trigger action without forcing a response, without creating pressure? There are several ways uh, that, that we can we can do this. I explore a few in the book. One interesting area is the concept of of reactance. Um, so it's not really sort of about forcing someone down a, a line. Actually, it can be about taking things away from people. And we sometimes find that when our attitudinal freedom is is threatened, or if we think that we actually are asking someone not to do something, and that option becomes even more attractive. The sort of the evolved example of this was actually. Called the Barbara Streisand effect or the Streisand effect, that someone was taking <laughs> imagery of of the, of the Malibu coastline to track coastal erosion, and Barbara Streisand got wind of this. And what they'd done is is taken some images of a Malibu palace, and she asked them to be taken down off the internet and took them to court. What she found was, I think, that the, the image had been downloaded about six times before she asked them to take it down. And as soon as she went to court and asked them to take it down, it got, got downloaded millions of times. So just a lovely example of when something is actually taken away from us, it can be it can be even more attractive. So the Guardian telling us not to read their advertising is a great way of encouraging someone to to, to be interested in what you have to say. Uh, to tell a customer that oh, sort of not everyone should be a Monzo customer makes the prospect of being a Monzo customer just that little bit more attractive. So again, it's not it's not forcing someone down the line. It, it, it gives it a little bit, bit of exclusivity, doesn't it? Exactly, taking something away from people and creating a sense of in, uh, a sense of intrigue and can trigger people into action. Uh, in in the book, we explore concepts like salient feedback again, so helping someone feel that um, that they're part of a journey. We, we find very hard for people to stick to speed limits when they when it's it's, it's, hard, it's difficult to know how fast we're going on a freeway. You might say it's it's 120 kilometres an hour. But when you go in that fast, the, the, the context around you on a wider highway is so is so is so difficult. But having a, a radar-enabled speed camera that says you're driving at 130 kilometres, big sort of frown face, it gives you a sense of salient feedback. You know where you are, and you can slow down. 
So there are several different solutions. Again, and that sort of concept of salient feedback is relevant on speeding, but Huggies diapers change color when the time to, to Gillette has a, a, a types of razor blades that change color when it's time to change the blades. There's styles of tire that when they become sort of tread-worn, that the, the words change tire are revealed. So three different, again, very different categories, all providing salient feedback that help trigger us into interaction. So there are a lot of sort of evolved solutions that exist um, that we can borrow from there. So, Sam, this has been a really, really fascinating introduction to this whole concept of evolutionary ideas. Thank you. Tell me this, your best mistake, if you look back over your career, what was the best mistake you made? The best mistake? Good question. I can't, nothing's coming to mind, best mistake. It doesn't have to be one that was pleasant, but one that you learned no, a lot no, no. from. I think sometimes there are interesting learnings working in different countries. And uh, so, so whether this is the best mistake, but an example of an error that, um, that, I, that I sort of uh, I, I learned from and, and resulted in, in good outcomes. But I was doing a, a, working on a project in North America in, a, in, a, in quite a sort of a, a, an industrial sort of working in a factory doing ideation. And I got excited about some of the ideas that people were creating. And I said, oh, that's a cracker. And in Australian, in a, from Australia, say so that's a cracker, sort of a cracker of an idea. But I think in, yeah. in, in some sort of, Quite a, quite a sort of a, a racial slur. That means that you're a, 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 a gammon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I could see how that wouldn't yeah, translate. Wouldn't, wouldn't go down. And I think it's, it's one of those examples of where you're sort of blissfully ignorant to, to your, your behavior and be mindful. How you operate in, in different in different cultures and circumstances, but in this instance, it was, a, it, was it was one that sort of hopefully brought me closer to, to the to the partners because obviously it was never my intention, and it sort of created some laughs and broke the ice. It was a it was a good lesson for me um, to think about adopting the language, even the difference between calling something a car park versus a parking lot. I mean, if you if you if, if in the US if you talking about a parking lot, you start talking about a car park, you just make yourself feel very different. So when you can sort of adopt in the language, the mannerisms, the, 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 the customs can be, can, be, can be helpful. I think that was a good, a good learning. A good introduction into cultural diversity and being able to adapt to different culture. Um, because I think it's very right. easy to only look through your frame of reference and uh, your, your uh, good friend, Rory Sutherland uh, talks about the lazy why, which I think is just a fantastic reminder not to fall foul of it because we, we do tend to jump at the first answer. And that's a huge mistake. That's right. But many we can fall into, um, so fall into them with a smile and, and, and see how we can get out of them. <laughs> so uh, in terms of great reading, what would you recommend people read? Once they've obviously read their evolutionary ideas, which are the, the go-to reference books that you went to? I mean, Altshuler seems to be a, a big hit there. You mentioned Rory just now. I've learned immensely by working with, with Rory, and there's many elements of the book that, that, that Rory has inspired in my thinking. So Rory's book, Alchemy, is a, is a wonderful read. And then if, we're, if you're sort of more interested in, in sort of purest behavioural books, then you've got 
Um, I mean, the, the gospel, albeit there are elements of adaptation and, and, and new learning, but still sort of some of the fundamentals of thinking fast and slow are, are critical. Predictably Irrational by Daniel Ariely, Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, influenced by Robert Cialdini, specifically with respect to, 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 to sales and relationship management. So I think there's some lovely sort of uh, fundamental texts out there if people are interested in, in better understanding behavioral sciences. And I can definitely recommend all of those. I've read them uh, all, been massively influential. Excellent. Sam, tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot 23-year-old Sam. What one bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have ignored but would have been valuable? I think at that age, I think follow, follow passion, not status. I think at that age there was a there was a sort of uh, I mentioned the very big the fork in the road of different avenues in psychology and and where I could apply this craft and there were some some really tempting spaces that felt higher status that weren't necessarily where my passion lay and I think I spent a lot of time finding that out there before I I, I jump ship into what I do now so that might be the message that I would say to my 23 year old self. Only a couple of years ago, mind you. Good advice. How can people get hold of you, Sam? Uh, I'm available on on on, on LinkedIn. Probably the the easiest. All my I'm uh, happy happy if, if people drop me an, an email, Sam Tatum at Ogilvy But LinkedIn and 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 at Twitter. So so S underscore Tatum on on Twitter. But yeah, happy happy for for, for LinkedIn. It's probably the, the easiest for external interest there. Excellent, Sam Tatum. Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. So if you haven't yet read Evolutionary Ideas, definitely get it. And and then I would also read Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. The two books are beautiful, really wonderfully uh, well thought through and packed full of practical, real life, real world examples. Now, in the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs, last, uh, laughs-last.com and if you're the CEO or founder of a 20 million plus tech scale up and you're suddenly finding that you've got to make profit when previously you were making revenue at any cost and you were focusing on acquisition of new customers, well, now would be a time to talk to me about really smart ways to innovate your way through the recession. Stay in touch, stay safe, happy selling. Bye-bye.